Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Frederick M. Pyrie. Fred has over four decades of wide-ranging experience from the foxhole to the boardroom in the fields of law enforcement, security, and training. He is a known expert providing testimony to the Congressional Oversight Committee on Counterterrorism and Security Issues, contributing to Fox News on Terrorism and Tactics, serving as guest speaker on various national security issues, and featured in the 2002 book, Relentless Pursuit, the DSS and the Manhunt for the Al-Qaeda Terrorists. As a U.S. Marine, Fred served as a corporal at the prestigious 8th and I Marine Barracks in Washington, D.C., After tours at the White House and the United Nations, he began a career in foreign service where he served over 20 years with the Department of State's Diplomatic Security Service as a counterterrorism special agent. During his assignments, he served in the Elite Mobile Security Deployment, MSD, as a team leader, responding to high-threat situations around the world, including Operation Desert Storm. He served in over 120 countries as well as the American Embassy in Beirut, as the regional security officer. Fred served in numerous high-visibility roles. He was agent in charge of the protective detail for former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, as well as responsible for the protection of former Presidents Aristide and Preval of Haiti and former President Hamid Karzai of Afghanistan. He was the lead diplomatic security investigator in the investigation of many high-profile international terrorist incidents including the World Trade Center bomber Ramsey Yosef and the killing of the U.S. Embassy employees in Haiti, among many others. Fred was responsible for setting up High Threat Protection Division and was responsible for the worldwide protective security contract valued at $3 billion and overseeing thousands of contractors providing security at high threat embassies. Upon entering the private sector, Fred held several senior leadership positions with organizations that provided security and training programs for the U.S. government and a classified agency. Fred has been recognized with the highest civilian award, the Medal of Valor, by former Secretary of State James Baker III. Fred, welcome to the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast. Fred, thanks for having me on. Fred, What kind of unique security problems does your company handle? Fred, I have two other business partners, and they have unique skill sets. Jared is an attorney and works compliant issues along with regulation issues, and he's located down in Dallas, Texas. And my other partner, Rick, is a retired Marine uh, and also retired from ATF where he was the acting branch chief of the NFA, which is a National Firearms Act, and also a world-renowned expert on firearms, court testimony, and doing training. We, Active Crisis, uh, do security assessments. We can 
conduct training designed for clients individually or a commercial or government. We also customize security programs for high net worth clients. We can do protective details, personal security. One of the big things this year, Fred, is the training for first-time gun buyers. With the 8 million new gun buyers, they need training. People think you just buy a gun, go to the range, and, you know, shoot, and that's it, and put it in a drawer. But uh, we do training for them. Uh, we also can conduct covert type of training, something you're familiar with, from protective intelligence, counter-surveillance, surveillance detection. Some of those things, so we were at the cutting edge uh, in diplomatic security back in the early 90s, and the Secret Service then adopted some of the protective intelligence groups. We also can conduct compliance with ITAR and Com Commerce Department. ITAR is under the State Department, and that's a lot of the exportation of weapons and ammo and technology. We can do firearms compliance with ATF, logistics purchasing weapons, ammo, personal protective equipment. And one of the new things that we got into last summer is cybersecurity. And within there, we can do network security from the ground up, the integration of security, internet, cameras, alarms, and also the new compliance of cybersecurity called NIST 800-171 compliance that most companies need to start working on in this year and next year for them to be able to do work with the government. I certainly know from our past, uh, Fred, the kind of cases we worked on back in the day in the 80s and the 90s. And what kind of people help you with some of these solutions as you look at these problems and when, when folks reach out to you? You know, that's a great question, Fred. I'd like to use the analogy. If you were suffering from heart problems, you would seek out a cardiologist. You wouldn't just go to a general practitioner, would you? No, you got to go to the experts. You know, for years, guys like you and me, you know, we've worked in the shadows. We've worked with a variety of skilled professionals around the world. But now I can share these experiences and contacts to tailor specific mission for clients. From my experience in working in mobile security deployments early in my career, that group is kind of the 911 group of diplomatic security within the State Department. That solidified my operational experience that I had through my 20 years with DS. The groups that I worked with and trained with are unmatched. Just to get into MSD, you spend a year in green team before you become operational. Back in the early 90s, if you can remember, Fred, I got back from Beirut and they sent me to Haiti to set up a protective security team for President Aristide under the Clinton administration. When this thing first started off, we ended up working with 20 former retired CAG personnel. So they have a high degree of medical training, and they round out some of the areas when we recruit for doing protection overseas. Uh, we do use former SWAT cops domestically. Um, the SWAT cops have good tactics, but they don't have the overseas experience, Fred. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. 
We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. So you've got a good group of uh, pretty much uh, America's best when it comes to the special operations community to address whatever kind of unique problems. But given the past year with COVID, how challenging has it been for the security and training industry? And how did Active Crisis, your company, respond to that? Fred, that's another good question. COVID-19 really slowed down a lot of the face-to-face training contracts. Last March, we quickly moved to become a logistics supplier for some of the larger companies in providing PPE equipment during the COVID uh, problem. We also started conducting a lot of security surveys because more and more civil unrest was happening and the local businesses were really worried about rioting and loss of their goods. Training contracts started coming back online, I'd say, this past fall. During the summer, we locked on with uh, one of the government agencies who you're familiar with, their tactical team that has to be ready to respond anywhere in the world within hours. We got them set up at one of our training providers uh, with housing and exclusivity for them to be able to train and live there while they were in their deployment cycle. That worked out. Given this past year and then what recently happened at the Capitol reminds me of the time I served in Beirut back in 2001. I arrived there right before 9-11. And Fred, if you can remember about 15 of the 19 suspected uh, terrorists, they were involved one way or another of passing through Lebanon. So we were really putting pressure on Lebanon to release certain information to us for the investigation. Well, that created a lot of unrest with the locals there in Lebanon. And we had close to about 40,000 people demonstrating outside the embassy. The embassy uh, had moved out of Beirut after the first bombing uh, back in the 80s, and they moved to Alcar, about eight miles outside of the city. So traditionally at the embassies, Security is a co-function. What do I mean by that? We usually have a local guard force that is armed, and they deal from the gates on in to the inner sanctum of the embassy. Outside on the perimeter area is generally the locals, either police or military. So we had the Lebanese on the outside, our people on the wire, and we have 40,000 people trying to come over the wall, and they released tear gas, we released tear gas, and, you know, we had to get that that mob, you know, under control. And it took the better part of the day, but, you know, no one breached the wall, and, you know, we kept everyone at, at bay there. Now, the interesting thing about that one is DS agents, you know, we're trained in physical security and understanding security practices, 
alarms, gates, fever, forced entry, ballistic resistance doors. And how that all come about. After the Beirut bombings, President Reagan commissioned Admiral Bobby Inman to set up the Inman Commission. He looked at the faults that happened and came forward with a lot of recommendations. And out of that one, diplomatic security went from just being the office of security to a a true bureau within the State Department, much like the FBI is a bureau within the Justice Department. The thing that came out, the interesting thing came out of that was a lot of the physical security standards that everyone now employs. And this is the genesis of a lot of setback heights of walls, thickness of walls. And these were through Bobby Inman and the engineers and studies done at White Sands and all over. At the time, the walls were set at a certain height and the thickness was set at a certain thickness. And that came about because the average car bomb was about 200 to 250 pounds of TNT. And that's all they could put in. They found in a trunk of the the size. Now, they weren't Cadillacs like we have in the States, but generally a smaller European type car. So the standards were built around what was happening at the 80s. Well, as we know, in Beirut, these things have gone from car bombs to truck bombs. If you can remember, Fred, when I went over to the Doha bombing, that slurry type bomb was over 10,000 pounds. So new setback rules and distances have come into that effect. And we've learned because the weapons have gotten greater. And that's where we update, you know, the locks, the cameras, the doors, and you use these all in conjunction with with others, with the setback, you know, like the green zone in Iraq, you know, we have multiple checkpoints there that stretch out maybe two miles. I mean, you can go on YouTube right now and see how people were blowing themselves up at the checkpoint or near the checkpoint and everything's just demolished. So these standards and, you know, bringing this all back into domestically here, you know, we take a look at that and then form our security packages around what's happening. And then with these riots and mass people here, you know, you need to have something at the Capitol if that's where they want to go with a setback. And, you know, maybe it is fences. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I know, Fred, based on the years we worked together in the counterterrorism division and working on protective intelligence around the globe that you've deployed on some of the largest terrorist attacks that's ever occurred against our our country. When you look at the private sector and with what you've done with active crisis, give me an example of one of the toughest jobs that you guys have handled or have been asked to perform in the course of the, your private sector duties? Probably nothing along the magnitude of uh, some of those terrorist attacks, but one of the things was a very detailed, protective detail that we were asked to set up uh, for an overseas high-ranking government official. And the challenges there were the numbers and the time constraints. 20 expats per shift uh, going in for two months and then coming out. So we needed to have an alpha and a bravo team. So basically, we needed 40 to 44 qualified personnel, and we needed to put this thing together within four days. Wow. So I was just working uh, with my partners around the clock, uh, recruiting, and I was surprised. Once we got the word out, Fred, through our network, 
I had close to 200 to 250 resumes. We had it on Indeed for about 12 hours, and I took it off right away because we had so many through word of mouth. I had at least six former DS agents that were retired that we were getting ready to deploy. I had two on each of the shifts because uh, you know they would provide some of the leadership there. Uh, the background of the people we had had balanced out to some of the stuff I worked with before. We had a mixture of CAG, some dev group guys. Uh, I had two PJs for each shift because they can provide the medical training. Along with that, of the recruitment and given the passports and moving this stuff through, we had the COVID restraints, and we also had designed up a three-day pre-deployment training course to get everyone on the same sheet of music. Uh, we also had undertaken the logistics, radios, fully armored vehicles, SPE, special protective equipment, the weapons, all the stuff for ITAR uh, export. And uh, you know we had everything moving along with, uh, at the time, we couldn't get any kind of vaccination, but we had to have quarantine, COVID quarantine protocols in place. And we took everything right to the edge. And one of the principals suffered a medical emergency and was hospitalized. So we had to table that whole deployment. And it's on the shelf right now when that would come up. But it really taught us how well we can mobilize in such a short period of time, Fred. Yeah, that's amazing. I can't think of a better person to ask this question. When you go into a dangerous location, what kind of extraction plans do you think about? Meaning, how the hell are you going to get your people out? Wow, another good question, Fred. You know, um, you know, being with the government, you know, you always had the government assets and resources. Well, in the private sector, you don't have that. We have strategic partners uh, with companies that have private planes and helicopters, uh, and these guys are some high-speed people. Uh, we've also, uh, we will enter into a contract to get international SOS assistance. Again, a plug there for a former DS agent who used to work there. And there's another good one, On Call International in New Hampshire. We also get our people uh, DBA insurance, which is Defense Base Act insurance for overseas deployments. So that is basically like kind of a workman's comp. So those are some of the things that we do. So we will move you know, mountains to get our people out if we need to. And one can't have enough contingency plans. That's correct. Razor, what haven't I asked you that you would like to say? Well, Fred, you know, being a small veteran-owned company, we're just the right size to be able to meet the needs of our clients and shift gears quickly. As I mentioned, we went from being training to COVID-19 and we became a logistics supplier on PPE. With our strategic partners within the field, we have the ability sometimes to act as a larger company with additional resources. We can customize security programs to meet the challenges, everything from high profile to low pro. We can do medical training, off-road driver training, personal security, active shooter programs, firearms tactics training, firearms ATF compliance, logistics, ITAR compliant. I think one of our biggest forte's, though, Fred, is you know you take all that that a lot of companies can do, but is customizing the training. I'm not knocking the industry. However, 
a lot of them you'll see advertise, hey, we have a four-day course and here it is. We basically take the client, look at them and determine what their needs are and customize the training around them rather than saying, well, here it is, take it or leave it type of thing. So that is one of our biggest fortes, to be able to listen. I found that that is one of the most important things in talking to the client, listen to what their needs are and their concerns and giving them that comfort level. We have a website, uh, www.activecrisis.com that you can take a look at. We're on LinkedIn. We also do a lot of the cyber work now, as I mentioned earlier, since we're, we're involved with that. And that has been a very unique uh, area. As you said, you and I were talking offline before, I got really involved with the cyber aspect or computers when uh, you know I was in Nairobi after the bombing of our embassy there, and we raided one of the terrorist compounds. Uh, myself, along with Mike Brooks, if you can remember him, he was a member of the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force, along with the FBI. And we hit this one place and came upon, you know, everyone standing around and we got maps. And all of a sudden we got these computers that were there. And, you know, luckily, you know, we had been trained up on how to take possession of these to preserve evidence and things like that. So they were a trove of information for us. And if you can remember from from bouncing around from Nairobi to the Philippines and back into Islamabad for the Ramsey Yosef stuff, it just seemed like the 90s were a whirlwind of that. So we've taken a lot of that experience and have been able to try to customize when a client comes in with a problem. And and, and that's one of the unique things I think that we can we can add to things, Fred. Well, I really, really appreciate you being on the OnTIC Protective Intelligence Podcast, Razor. You uh, you have served your country not only in the military, but with uh, the Diplomatic Security Service and what you continue to do. So I thank you for that and really appreciate you joining us today. Fred, it's been my pleasure. And again, I always love catching up with you. But again, thanks for having me on and uh, good luck with things. Thank you, Razor. Take care. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/center. Again, that's ontic.ai/center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.